0: tells us that uh, this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is our theme today. You've heard it develop this morning. We look forward now to our final session. I don't know whether to complain about the NIV publicly or not. You see, when you translate it, this day is sacred to the Lord, instead of this way is holy, this day is holy to the Lord. Um It is harder to make plain to your people that the essence of holiness is joy, which is what that verse teaches. This day is holy to the Lord, therefore do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see the argument there? This is a holy day. Be happy. Hardly anybody makes that connection between holiness and happiness. Holiness is sad and happiness is something else. But you miss it in the NIV. That's my complaint. Uh, I suppose you could make it with sacredness, perhaps, but uh, I don't use the NIV in my preaching, and I've got a pretty sophisticated and developed reason for why I don't, but that's uh, you can ask about that in the question time if you want, since probably most of you do. <laughs> um, let me pick up with some implications from the second hour, and then jump into the third, namely Uh, The first one was God's passion for God. The second hour was your passion for God. And then this hour we want to be your passion for others, passion for God. But I I, I ran out of time and therefore I wasn't able to give you some practical implications of what I said. And I have four of them written down. I mentioned one in passing, but I'll I'll mention them again quickly. Um, Number one, worship is a coming to get and not just a coming to give. So don't berate your people. That a dead worship service is their fault because they're coming to get it might be their fault, but it isn't because they're coming to get it's probably because they're coming to get the wrong thing. And they need to be taught that God is worth coming to get that seeing God is worth coming to get and they need to come on the search for God. I I tell my people come on the lookout for God and leave on the lookout for people. That's the way I try to cultivate a holy prelude time of quiet, personal pursuit and a lively interaction with visitors and so on at the end of the service. Come on the lookout for God. Bend down in prayer. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Ask God to come down on the service. But when you leave, spot those people that you don't know and show them the love that you've received. Second implication is that... This all leads to a radically God-centered life. And that's my goal in the ministry is to make God-centered people who put God back on the agenda everywhere in their business, everywhere in their family, everywhere in their recreation and their entertainment, that God is central. God is on the agenda. Uh, People who are troubled by whether or not they are idolaters because they enjoy ice cream or sex Or sunrises. And then instead of uh, yielding to a bifurcation in life or idolatry, pray with Augustine. This was a life-changing prayer when I read it in Bettinson. He loves thee too little, Father, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. You know, you bump into a sentence every now and then that changes your life. And that's one of them. He loves thee too little, Father, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. That's radical God-centeredness. So if you're going to love teaching, if you're going to love sandwiches, if you're going to love snow, if you're going to love children, if you're going to love collecting stamps, Seeing sunrises, you must seek to love it for God's sake. Otherwise, your life is going to be in little categories and you will not be an integrated, God-centered person. That's implied in what I've said. Third, we as leaders need to motivate people through joy. We need to motivate them through joy. The I never call my people to do anything but be happy or to take steps that may look unhappy in the short run to make them happier in the long run. Repentance is not immediately a pleasurable thing, but it's a necessary means to a joyful end. And so I'm always couching my challenges, whether it's missions or whether it's uh, serving in the nursery. I mean, there are if you're a children's worker and you're responsible for the nursery, there are some awesome texts. Awesome hedonistic texts. He who receives one such child in my name receives me. I mean, that is simply mind boggling. If you believe that, if you receive a child in the name of Jesus into your arms for care, you receive the very son of God and he who receives me receives him who sent me. You want to receive God into your life and no fellowship with God? Work in the nursery. Powerful. Not, you know, you know, come on, you parents, you get benefit from this. Put in your time. That doesn't do as good. Motivate with joy. But now I have heard over the years, many pastors and leaders try to motivate with joy and it falls flat as a pancake. And as I thought why that is, I thought of three reasons. One, they have not developed any vision of God that makes sense out of it. It, It's just coming out of the blue. The Bible says here, um, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So come on, seek blessing. Now, that's absolutely true. I'm going to argue for that in a few minutes. But if you haven't been teaching over the years that that's the way God is, But there's no foundation for hearing that with any integrity and depth. When my people hear me say after 11 years of teaching, it is more blessed to give than to receive. They're hearing hundreds of sermons that all are moving in that direction with a vision of God that has been developed that supports that. And therefore, it doesn't sound trite. It doesn't sound cheap sort of to niggle them. Maybe this will work this Sunday to get you to do what you're supposed to do. But rather, it really is part of what makes this pastor in this church and this world tick, what he just said. Um, and the other reason I think it has fallen flat is because it doesn't really sound like the pastor lives that way. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. A, ha- a happy pastor is a great blessing to a church and a pastor who does his work uh, with drudgery uh, will find it very hard to motivate his people with joy. And the last implication is that this vision of pursuing God and pursuing joy in God is the secret of sanctification. It's the secret of the holiness of your people, because I believe the Bible really teaches that um, the way to drive out a sin is with a greater pleasure. Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon 175 years ago or so, can't remember his dates exactly, called the expulsive power of a new affection. I love that phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. What it means is if you've got a bondage to a, a sinful pleasure and all sin is pleasurable or otherwise nobody would do it. If you've got a, a, a bondage to a sinful pleasure the best way, the most biblical way, the most effective way of getting that pleasure dislodged is with the expulsive power of a new affection, a new pleasure. I wonder how many of you read about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago in Leadership Magazine, that really amazing story called The Anatomy of Lust. It's a very popular article. They had immense response to it. It was followed up on anonymously. A pastor talked about his 11 year bondage to lust. He'd go off like I'm doing right now to Boston to do a spiritual seminar and he'd go off to peep shows on the side and strip shows. And he never committed adultery, he said. But he just was absolutely addicted to pornography of every kind. And he described this and what he described as his deliverance after 11 years was the overwhelming attractiveness of holiness that was born in his life when he read a novel by Francois Mauriac called The Red and the Black. He said, all of a sudden, all the guilt that I had tried to use to get myself out of this uh, and didn't work, fell away before the irresistible portrait of purity. And holiness and beauty. It was born in my life and the desire to have that and seeing what I was missing liberated me from the bondage. And in my life, my own fight against sexual mental misbehavior is fought precisely hedonistically. You fight fire with fire. You fight image With image, you fight desire with desire. It doesn't do any good, by and large, to address a sexual fantasy or desire with thou shalt not do that. What works is if you do that, you ram a sword into the side of Jesus and you miss fellowship with him. If you turn that television on and keep watching those ads or turn on that movie You will become so impure that your love life with Christ will be jeopardized. And that's infinitely more precious and infinitely more pure and wonderful. You have to so fall in love with the positive that's jeopardized by the lust that you overcome the alluring power of the lust by the superior alluring power of the beauty of God. So I walked into my room down at Gordon the other night when I was lecturing down there and lo and behold, there's a TV in the corner. 10.30 10.30 at night. And I don't have a TV. I don't own a TV. I haven't had a TV in our home for 23 years. And my boys are growing up. They're all accepted. They're whole. They're natural. They're normal. They're not weird, you know. Uh, in fact, they're cool. Um, and I think they will be for eternity. But this is big issue that Mark and I are talking about, whether to be culture redeeming or culture rejecting here, so I'm I'm not commending that everybody get rid of their television, but uh, I know my weaknesses. And uh, so here's this television, and uh, I got a lecture to these students uh, in 20 20 hours or whatever it was, and uh, I didn't turn it on the whole time, not even get the news or weather or anything, just because everything has an advertisement, and every advertisement is sexy or either greedy. It only appeals to two things, greed or sex. That's all advertisements ever appeal to. And uh, so I left it off. And it was it was wonderfully freeing for me to want so much to be full of the Holy Spirit. When I spoke to those students, I would not compromise that desire because I knew if I were to be drugged down that night just by a simple ad that sent a, a sexual fantasy in my mind that was harder to get out than if I didn't have it on, I would be less in perfect, clean communion with God. And I want that more than anything. So I just left it off and it was wonderful to be free from it. Now, that's what I mean by sanctification. The power of a superior longing, a superior desire, not just the negative. Don't do this. Don't do this. So I just try to breathe into my boys and my church that sin is loss. Sin is loss, not gain. Now, this hour we want to talk about the horizontal dimensions of Christian hedonism. If it's true that we should pursue our joy all the time in relation to God, maximizing our delight in him and thus showing that he's infinitely worthy and thus he gets glory and we get joy, and uh, those two things not being in conflict make for the best world, what about my relationships to you? And the people in my church, should I also pursue joy all the time in relation to you? And here's my thesis. Uh, The pursuit of pleasure is an essential motive in every good deed. Or to put it another way, if you abandon the pursuit of pleasure, full and lasting pleasure, if you abandon the pursuit of full and lasting pleasure, Psalm 1611 pleasure, you cannot love people. Or please God. So it's pretty radical, pretty sweeping statements. If you abandon the pursuit of pleasure, you cannot love people or please God. So I'm not only saying it's legitimate for you to pursue your pleasure in relation to other people and the way you serve them, I'm saying it's necessary. As a necessary part of virtue. The last hour was it's a necessary part of worship, the very heart of worship. This hour is, it's a necessary part of love or virtue in relation to people. All right, now let me try to undergird that biblically. Second Corinthians 8, 1 to 8, has proved for me to be a paradigm of love and has shown me the Christian hedonism elements in Paul's understanding of love. The situation here, you know, is that Paul is writing to Corinth to prepare a large gift to take to Jerusalem for the poor saints there. And to read these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, is to read the way Paul motivated people to give money. And I recommend highly for your stewardship preaching these two chapters and the way Paul motivated. It's really remarkable. So here's here's his beginning. We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. So he's now talking to the Corinthians about what happened up in Macedonia, up in uh, Thessalonica and Philippi and so on. The grace of God, which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. And I skip down to verse eight, just to pick up the word love. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely those Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. Now, the reason I pick up verse eight here. Your love also is just to show you that the dynamic of this generosity is love. Okay, this is a fleshing out in practical experience of what Paul means by love, because he says, I'm telling you this story about the Macedonians so that I can allure you and test you and Provoke you to love also, meaning they were loving. Now you love like they loved. So let's go back and find out what love is. So that's what this session is about. Horizontal love between people. Love for the Jerusalem saints, for example. And there are several things to observe here. The first thing is that uh, they were filled up with the grace of God. We want you to see the brethren. uh We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God, which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. So the first thing to see is that what's happening here is grace. It's the working of the power of grace in the lives of these Macedonian Christians. Grace is being poured out from God into the hearts of the people. Here's the second thing to notice. They were filled with an abundance of joy shown in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy overflowed. So what happens when grace comes down is a joy comes up. Rains came down and floods came up. So the rains of the rain of, of grace comes down and the flood of joy comes up. And it comes up to the brim. Third thing to observe. The joy overflows in liberality. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of liberality. Now, before I stress that third point, notice in the second point that the thing that was filling them with joy was not things. They were poor, extremely poor. Notice that their extreme poverty overflowed. So let's not think that this is why I'm not real big on health, wealth, and prosperity, that that the grace of God took away their poverty. It didn't. The grace of God came down and in extreme poverty, they richly overflowed. They richly overflowed with a wealth of li- a wealth, they didn't have anything, but it was a wealth of liberality on their part. Verse four, I don't have it on the overhead here, but verse four says they begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, he mentions that just to show what the overflow was like. It wasn't simply an overflow that sort of slipped out accidentally. The, the, the grace filled up joy, and then it just sort of, oops, it spilled over. These people said, Oh Paul, please, I know you've taken one offering, but please take another offering. That's exactly what verse 4 says. They begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. We want, would you please not stop us from giving? Please don't put any brakes on our giving. Please let us give some more. Now, when my children at an amusement park say, oh, daddy, please let us ride on the the roller coaster again. Please. One more time, please. I do not assume that they are responding from a sense of moral duty. They are expressing a deep desire because it will make them happy. So I assume that when these people talk that way, they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, that they were not saying, "Mm, yeah, you're supposed to tithe and go beyond the tithe. And that's what Christians do. But rather, they were saying, this really makes us glad. Now, here's my definition of love, therefore. That's what I'm fishing for here. A definition of love, because it says here. I want to prove that your love, too, is genuine. So this is love, what we've just seen here. The dynamics of grace being outpoured, joy filling up, spilling over in liberality to poor people out of a sense of poverty yourself. This is love. So here's my definition. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which meets the needs of others. I, can, I think I can improve on that a little bit, though, or maybe just add to it by saying uh love is the impulse. I get this from verse four where they're begging. Please let us give. Let us give the impulse to increase your joy in God by extending it to others. Love is the impulse to increase your joy in God by extending it to others. So. uh The grace comes down. The joy comes up. And when it gets to the brim, it starts flowing. And as it flows, it extends and expands. Your joy expands. Now, you've all experienced this. You all know what I'm talking about, even if you haven't thought of it in these terms. That when God has blessed you, when God has filled you up, there is an impulse at that moment that wants so much to spread it, to say at least look at it. And when you spread it and another is folded in to that experience, your joy in God is increased by having it expanded out into that other person's heart. Now, right off the bat, I hope you can see that there's no conflict here between being a joy pursuing person and a loving person, but that they are, in fact, the same in this text. These people are asking, begging Paul to let their joy in God increase by letting them give more to the saints. The presupposition is, however, something radical has changed about these people's orientation to the world. It's called new birth. And many of our people are not born again. Many of our people are not born again. If you wonder why they don't respond... To this kind of preaching and why they don't sing for joy and why they're so flat and unresponsive. Many of them are not born of God. And that's why we cry out for revival. Again and again. So there's my definition. Now, I said uh, earlier this morning that Joseph Fletcher said that uh, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's a commitment of the will and so on. Now, as I read this, I I don't see that. It seems to me that love is an overflow of joy. It's a a strong pursuit of maximizing that joy and letting me give more. And then I turn to 1 Corinthians thirteen three, and I read these words. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if you can give away all that you have and not be loving and give your body to be burned for somebody and not be loving, then I say loving cannot be reduced to action. It just can't be because what more can you do than to die for somebody? What more can you do than to give away all you have for somebody? I mean, if that's not love, then love can't be just an action. It has to involve something, some dynamic of the heart here. And the dynamic, I believe, is love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. So if you if you die out of delight in God for somebody, they are loved. If you give away all your goods out of delight in God for somebody, they are loved. Paul is so God centered in his theology, he refuses to define The ultimate sacrifice for somebody as love, unless God is in the picture. That's a radical thing. And that helps a lot in accounting for why God might be displeased with pagan beneficence, pagan philanthropy. Now, a lot of people ask me. Well, don't unbelievers do a lot of nice things for people? I say, well, yeah, sure. Uh, nice things if you just leave God out of existence and leave God out of the picture entirely. But if God, their Father, is in the picture, and He's standing there looking down on them and knowing that He created them for His glory, and they totally ignore Him, they make no bones about it, they don't give a rip for God, but they're gonna do nice things for people, then the Father heart of God is not honored. And those people are living so far outside the will of God that it's scarcely to be exaggerated. And so it is not righteousness. Whatsoever is not from faith is sin. Romans fourteen twenty three. And faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you don't do things for God's sake, they are not loving and they do not please the Lord. They are sin even if they are building hospitals and schools and saving babies' lives and so on. Let's look farther. Let's see, I don't, yes, here it is. In that same section, Second Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that is just remarkable to me. God does not want reluctant, compulsive obedience. He doesn't like it. What he likes, loves, it says, is a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that means that if you have an ethic which says how you feel, About acts of obedience is not crucial. What you do is crucial. That's a pretty typical way of thinking today. That, in relation to this text, is saying you can be indifferent about what God loves. I think that's sin. I think the definition of sin is to be indifferent about what God loves. What God loves is cheerfulness in giving. If you say that doesn't count, you look in you look in God's face and say, I realize you love this and want this and call for this, but I'm indifferent to it. I think it's uh, irrelevant. I think it's icing on the cake. <laughs> I can't do that. And I don't want to encourage anybody else to do it. God loves a cheerful giver. That means that love towards people that is giving towards people should be done cheerfully. Therefore, you must In order to be faithful to that text, pursue cheer, gladness, joy in your giving. If you say, I will just give. I don't need to pursue my joy because that's selfish. Then you are saying I'm indifferent to what God is calling me to do. This is why I said at the beginning that you are not able to please God if you forsake the pursuit of your own pleasure. Because this text right here says he loves when you Give out of pleasure. If you say that really doesn't matter, that word right there is a a negligible word, then you have really attacked the biblical contours of ethics. There are a bunch of texts, and I have several of them here, that relate directly to us elders in the church on this score of how to minister to our people in the pursuit of our own joy and their good. And, and one is First Peter 5 two, tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And I can't help but point out this connection. It's the same ethical dynamic here with regard to giving. He said, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion with regard to the elders in their ministry. He said, don't uh, shepherd your charge under constraint, but do it willingly. Not for money, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And I translate eagerly, cheerfully, joyfully. So what this is saying is God loves a cheerful pastor. This says God loves a cheerful giver. This says God loves a cheerful pastor. That's exactly what he's teaching there. It's not an option. It's a warfare. It's a battle. To say to yourself when you're down, oh, it doesn't matter that I'm down or it doesn't matter these things. Then you are saying that a text like this uh, is not a command. It's not important. Here's another one. Acts 20:35. This is to elders now. Remember, Paul stops at Miletus, sends for the elders to, from Ephesus, and gives this amazing and wonderful message in Acts 20 that's worth preaching about five weeks on, I think. And then he closes like this. In all things I have shown you that by so toiling, one must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, what's the most important word in that verse, I wonder? Here's the word that I think is most important. Remembering. Now, here's why I think remembering is the most important word there. There are ethicists today. I ran across them mainly in my doctoral work on love your enemies, as I was trying to study the New Testament motivation for loving your enemies, who would say uh, when they read Jesus' promise of reward, yes, a reward is uh, coming to those who love, but no, you shouldn't aim at the reward because then you destroy the moral virtue of the act. And that never worked for me because Jesus always seemed to use the reward as the motive right up front. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Do that. Provide yourself with it. Don't turn away from it. Provide yourself with it. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Um, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you. For so they treated the prophets, for so will your your, your reward in heaven will be great. That's why... You should be willing to do that. Jesus didn't seem to hide it. Now you get here. This is this is one of the only places outside the Gospels where Jesus is quoted. And Paul says. Remember. When you are about to cave in on this issue, remember when you have toiled and you're weak and you're trying to help the weak, and you feel beat down, and you're about to give up, and you don't have enough motivation, remember something. Call it to mind. Whereas the ethicists are saying, forget this. This is very dangerous for your moral virtue. Forget this. Forget this promise of reward. Paul says, remember the promise of reward. So he says, remember the words of the Lord. How he said, it is more blessed. To give than to receive. Now, just let's be real practical and honest here. You, the phone rings, you've just gotten down on the floor to play a game of Connect Four with your eight year old and your eleven year old, and you're tired, you've put in eleven hours already today, and somebody is in the hospital and wants you to come. And your emotions do not rise to the occasion. And say, great, another pastoral opportunity to bless people. Instead, most of what's happening inside is resentment. Some of it irrational. It's not their fault they're in the hospital. Uh, or maybe resentment that the staff didn't get called or, or whatever. Um, I think what Paul is saying to us at that moment is, remember something. Remember something. Call to your mind. And let it have a moral effect upon your motivational structure at this moment. Remember that Jesus said, there's a big blessing in what you're about to do, what you have to do, what you're going to do. Preach to yourself this blessing. Preach. Preach. And so I do. I get in the car and head off. And generally I'm repenting for those echoes of selfishness in my life that don't really want the big joy of love, but the little joy of leisure. But so often, thank the Lord, in the elevator down at Abbott Northwestern, or what used to be uh, MMC, or Mount Sinai. I get in the elevator, push the button, still praying, God give me joy in this, because I know I'm not going to bless this person if I go in there begrudgingly. I walk in there and the Lord, either in the walking, at the bedside or in the prayer or something, more often than not, answers my prayer and makes me delight in this moment of ministry and receive from him and often from that person in the moment of ministry. But the warfare has been performed with the word of God. Remember, don't forget. And I just want to warn you against You will read again and again in sophisticated, philosophical, biblical literature. Whenever you get to the commentary on things like Luke 14, when you throw a banquet, don't invite your friends who can pay you back. Rather, invite the poor and the lame and the blind and the naked for they cannot pay you back. For you will be repaid at the resurrection. And the the comment of these sophisticated philosophical commentators will be, well, of course there will be reward, but don't let that be your motive. You'll hear it again and again and again because they say it destroys love. And what I'm trying to show you from biblical text is that it is it is love. To want to maximize your delight in God by moving toward others who need you, even at great cost to yourself, that is loving. And to go begrudgingly without any pursuit of joy, without any thought that this could benefit you, does not make people feel loved. And so, uh, just like this morning, the hindrance to loving is not what so many people think it is. Just like the hindrance to worshiping is not what so many people think it is. I said this morning that the hindrance to worship is not that people come to get instead of to give. That's not the hindrance. Nor is the hindrance to loving that people want joy. It's that they settle for such little joys. Little teeny joys. And we need to cry out to them to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. Not on earth. Most people are so bent on maximizing leisure, maximizing security, maximizing comforts, getting to the right neighborhood, getting the right job, having all the right toys around them and all the right things that they have set their hearts on things that do not satisfy. When in fact, what satisfies is first To look to God, be filled up with him, and then to maximize that joy in God by extending it to others at whatever cost to yourself. Joy is maximized as you extend it to others. That's why in the book I really press hard the wartime lifestyle. Of stripping down to the essentials of life for the sake of maximizing the amount of Love and good that you can show, because I think that things and the pursuit of things and the pursuit of security and the pursuit of comfort and the pursuit of leisure and the pursuit of recreation and maximizing all those things are just a dead end street. They're like throwing money down a rat hole. But to give your money into missions and to keep your life relatively simple, to put a cap on your spending and to earn as much as you can, like Wesley says, and give as much as you can, maximizes the real joy inside. The the accumulation of things has never increased anybody's capacity for pleasure. In fact, it works in the inverse. The more things we come to depend on, the less our capacity for true joy in what matters and what counts. Sell your possessions, give alms, provide for yourselves purses in the heavens that don't grow old and with treasure that does not fail. In other words, go for broke. Stop being satisfied with little five and a quarter percent yields. Rather, go for the real blue chip stuff in heaven that's divinely secured. That's the kind of message I think we need to herald to our thing and material addicted culture. It's really good news. It really is good news. Come to Christ and find pleasure forevermore. Now, um, let me take you through a little series of texts in Hebrews. If you have a Bible and you want to turn or if you just want to watch as I put it on the overhead, you can do that. One time defending Barnabas as the author of Hebrews and still would probably vote. for Name. I'd like to think he has that added heritage behind it, but I don't know who wrote Hebrews. But this author has a way of motivating love and virtue that is so hedonistic. It's it's the most consistent set of texts to undergird what I'm saying that there is in the Bible that I have found. So I want to carry you through three or four of these Hebrews texts. I love this first one, especially because it's so relevant to the pro-life effort that I've been involved in and numerous other kinds of battles we have to fight. The situation evidently is that in the early days of this church, there was persecution. Persecution. Some of the people were put in prison and others of them were not captured and had to make a choice. Shall we go underground and be quiet and let our brothers and sisters sit there? Or shall we go public and visit them in prison? Let everybody see that we, too, are Christians and risk having our house burned and ourselves captured. What's the choice? And they made the choice in the latter and how they did it. This is love. How were they motivated is described here. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, some in jail and some out, for you had compassion on the prisoners, and you, there's the amazing word, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew Here's the argumentation. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence in that great future, which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God that is love and receive the promise, the reward. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I, I just don't know how anybody reads that and not become a Christian hedonist. Here they are. Just picture them now. They're in the house. Probably in those days, if people survived in prison, it was because their relatives took them food. They didn't have a big, sophisticated $30,000 a year support for prisoners like we do today. So you, you take people food and or they die. So we sitting here, shall we love them and risk our lives or shall we not? And they pray and they uh, remember the psalm Your steadfast love is better than life. And then they remember Martin Luther's hymn. Um, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also the body they may kill, God's truth, the body is still, his kingdom is forever. Let's go. Then they go. And when they get halfway to the prison, they turn around and their house is on fire. And they sing. They sing. They're throwing the furniture out in the streets. And they sing. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Where does that power come from? You had a better possession and an abiding one. You had great reward. You will receive what is promised. Anybody that tells me that I should not live for my promise, live for my reward, live for my inheritance, be willing to let goods and kindred go precisely because I have a kingdom. Anybody that tells me that that is not a proper motive strikes at the heart of biblical ethics in my judgment. And do you see how God gets glory here? God gets the glory. I mean, the people look at them. They turn over their shoulders. Their house is burning. Their furniture is being thrown out in the streets. And they're singing. And these people look at them. And you know what they ask? Tell us a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope, promise. Hope, reward. Hope, possession. When Peter said live so that people will ask you where your hope is, he meant be so happy in loving others at cost to your present worldly status that people will have to say he must have another payoff. And the answer is, yes, I've got another payoff. The answer is not. No, I'm a stoic and I just do things because they are right. That be, that's an atheistic ethic. I really believe that. And I've dialogued with the philosopher of at Augsburg College. And I really and he's an evangelical, he says, I think it's an atheistic ethic. Do right for right's sake. I think that's atheism. You don't do right for God's sake. And the way God gets glory for doing right is because you are taking delight in God to give you the strength to do it. And the strength comes from the promise. I'm no hero. If I'm going to die for somebody, there better be a payoff. And if you think that sounds self-centered, you're forgetting the images. You're forgetting the images of the bowl. I want God. If God doesn't say if you die for these people to get arrested for standing in front of the abortion clinic, I will be your God in prison. I will be there. I will bless you. I will make up to you everything you've left behind. You can't out-sacrifice me. That humbles us, makes us empty. Let's see whether or not this pattern is followed through. So we're into chapter 11 now, the Hall of Fame, Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews 11. This is Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God. Doesn't sound hedonistic, does it? Hang on. Choosing to share ill-treatment, just like they chose to go to the prison and have their their goods plundered. Choosing to share ill-treatment with the people of God, then to enjoy, ooh, this really doesn't sound hedonistic, the fleeting, ah, now we're starting to get the clues, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Nobody likes to have his goods plundered. There are pleasures in not having your furniture burned. Nobody wants that. But what we have learned in the Bible is that the pleasures of comfort and leisure and wealth are fleeting. At least we ought to have learned. They are so fleeting. I mean, they last maximally 80 years. And what's that to eternity? Tell me who gives a rip about 80 years when you're talking 80 million ages of years the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the abuse suffered for the christ greater wealth just like they had a better possession than an abiding one he had greater wealth than the treasures of egypt for he looked to the reward it's exactly the same motivational structure and here's another one oops where is it i have it I want chapter 12. There it is. Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him, just like Moses and just like those early saints. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and was seated at the right hand of God. The greatest act of love that was ever performed was performed hedonistically. The greatest act of love that was ever performed was performed in quest of joy. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You realize how close you come to attacking the very heart of the gospel if you attack the pursuit of pleasure in love or if you deny that the motive of pursuing joy is the very heartbeat of the pursuit of love. The reason this was not... Unloving of Jesus is because the the joy that was set before him was the exaltation of his father and himself on the praises of a redeemed people through this suffering. The people were swept up into the joy that he lived for. He wasn't choosing joy over against people. He was choosing the joy that sweeps people into it. And that's what I mean when I say we should pursue joy. When you go into the hospital room pursuing joy, you are thinking, Lord, I want to sweep those people into my joy. I don't have anything to give them but joy in you at this moment. And if I don't have it, I don't have it to share and to give and to extend. And so grant me to draw them in to my joy. One more in Hebrews 13, 13 to 14. Therefore. Therefore. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. So this is a call to radical suffering in the Christian life. Let us go with him outside the camp to Golgotha and bear the abuse he endured. And then comes the ground clause. For here we have no lasting city. You know, even if you could escape uh, abuse for 80 years, it wouldn't last. If you could build a city with every possible pleasure in it. It's over, folks. It's over in the twinkling of an eye. My life is a two second vapor's breath, James says, and it's gone. And then what have you got? Nothing but hell. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek The city which is to come. So when you head with Jesus on the Calvary Road, out of Jerusalem, into abuse, what are you seeking? The city which is to come. And there's no conflict here. Jesus was pursuing the joy set before him. We're seeking the city which is to come. And in the process, we're laying down our lives for our people. And they are most blessed when we do that with joy. If we do that begrudgingly, if we have a spirit of loss about us, boy, does that communicate that God is not worth very much. Let me go back to that problem in 1 Corinthians 13. We're almost done. Remember, I raised the problem of love seeks not its own. I've got the RSV here, which doesn't do very good either. There's no perfect translation. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is not patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, here's the, the literal wording. Here is the good old King James. Love seeks not its own. R.S.V. says love does not insist on its own. Love seeks not its own. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, I've just told you to seek your own in all acts. In fact, I've said it's an an essential part of all virtue to be seeking your own joy in expanding God's love and joy to other people in your life. How do I get over that? Love seeks not its own. It's not love if you're seeking your own. I do it by simply noticing clues in the context here that Paul didn't mean to indict the joy I get from teaching. Like he didn't mean to say, Piper, if you love to preach, or if you love to teach and you get a lot of joy out of it, you're not loving when you do it. He didn't mean to say that. The clue that he didn't mean to say that is here. If I have all faith so as to, and all knowledge, and if I have, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, what kind of argument is that? That's an argument that appeals to your desire to gain. If I give away all I have and have not love, I gain nothing. And you don't want to not gain, do you? That's the assumption of the argument. You don't want to lose everything. You want to gain. So be willing to lose your life in love. He cannot, therefore, down here, be indicting all pursuit of gain. What he's indicting is the manipulation and the use of people for material temporal gain. When he says love seeks not its own. Um, one of you guys asked me a great question. You, you came up and, and you said, are you saying that when I compliment you and say I like your sweater or I like your talk and it gives me pleasure that that's OK? That that's uh, um That it's not, it doesn't diminish the value and the worth of my compliment. That in fact, it is giving me pleasure. And I said, no, that's the very essence of what I'm trying to say. That in fact, your expression of love to me is enhanced in its moral character if you enjoy it. I think the enjoyment of doing good makes the doing of good better, not worse than others. And therefore... I don't think when Paul says uh, that love seeks not its own, he meant love gets no joy out of loving. Can, can you think of an Old Testament verse? I wonder that says you should really enjoy loving. Micah, what is it? Six, eight, six, eight. Um, how's it go? You cheated. Amen. So did I. He he has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly. Isn't that remarkable? So Paul surely doesn't mean when he says love seeks not its own is that love does not enjoy loving. That's just not what he means. He means love does not try to manipulate. Love does not stand here and say, "Uh, I like your sweater in order to get the sweater. If your motive is to get the sweater, that is material gain then it's not love or if your motive is to compliment somebody in order to put them in a position of flattery so that they respond by hiring you for a job or you see what I mean? There's a way to use kindness to manipulate people into giving you earthly, temporal, material benefits. That's what Paul's indicting here. But if your goal is to have the, the maximizing of the joy of loving or the joy in God, extending that joy in God to others, then it, it's not being indicted. That's not what Paul has in mind when he indicts, uh, the people. I mean, when he indicts uh, self-seeking. Let me see how to close this up here. There is such a thing as self-denial in loving one another. But we deny ourselves uh, sand in order to stand on a rock and we deny ourselves tin in order to have gold and we deny ourselves moth-eaten treasure in order to have heavenly treasure. and We deny ourselves drunkenness and gluttony in order to have the biggest, longest banquet of the universe. And we deny ourselves self-reliance in order to have the assurance of saying the Lord is my shepherd. But we never deny ourselves a greater value for a lesser value it's always the other way around. Let me close by uh reading a quote from David Livingston that I mentioned earlier in if you have the book there, you can even look at it with me it 's on page two o one Things like this from missionary sufferers have meant a lot to me in my unfolding of this on page two o one Delivering this to, in 1857, David Livingston said to the students of Cambridge, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, Peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. If God could put within us that kind of conviction, our people would be tremendously blessed. God's passion for God is the foundation of our passion for God. And when our passion for God is filled up by grace and begins to overflow, then we maximize our joy in God by extending it to others. That's missions, that's evangelism, that's every manner of loving, counseling, caring activity in the church for God's sake, for God's glory. Now, looks to me we have 20 minutes for Questions And I'm wide open here for you to correct me or to push me farther than I've thought or to just ask for clarification. Go ahead. Let me repeat the question in case it's being taped. There are two kinds of people we're trying to direct out of what they're doing. One is those who are pursuing pleasure in uh, places where it really can't be found in sin and those who are uh, serving God uh, dutifully and uh, slavishly and dysfunctionally because they are wounded or uh, shaped by a dysfunctional past. Um, I have found that while most of those kinds of problems are deeper than any simple sermon or mere theology will rectify, it is a very freeing thing for a person to hear that there is a biblical way of understanding the do's and don'ts of the Bible. Now, I'm coming at this from my perspective, and I might not hit your nail on the head, but um, one of the most common issues I have to deal with are those who have been told that their healing lies in unconditional love. And I don't see any unconditional love in the Bible except electing love. That is... I think that in order to get to heaven, we must meet conditions. We must believe and we must obey. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but it does say if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. If you don't walk in the light, you don't get cleansing and you go to hell. Now, counselors, by and large, will tell me that's an unhelpful thing to say to broken people. And so they don't say it, by and large. Nothing is said by way of blaming, shaming, ought, must, should. Those are words that are ruled out of the counseling setting. Ought, must, should. However, everybody who reads the Bible know that those words are all over the place. And it isn't working for biblical people. If you're willing to surrender the Bible to the counseling motif of unconditional love, then it works. But if you're not willing to surrender the Bible with its shoulds and musts and oughts and its conditions, then it doesn't work. What's, what's freeing is to say to those people, the shoulds and the musts and the oughts are spoken by a doctor not an employer, and the doctor wants you well. He has a passion for your wholeness and your heavenliness and your freedom. The shoulds, the musts, and the oughts of the Bible are the doctor's therapy and the doctor's prescription to make you well. They are not a job description by which you earn his favor. So this analogy of a doctor with a doctor's prescription versus an employer with a job description has proved to be tremendously helpful to those people because they all know that the musts and shoulds are in the Bible. They all know they're there. They they, they may hear somebody say uh, uh, all grace is unconditional and you get to heaven without meeting any conditions and they just know it's not true because all over the Bible we're told to meet conditions. And so they hear the conditions are delivered to us as those who show their trust in their doctor by taking the pill of the command. The doctor has already taken them into his clinic. The doctor has already declared that he knows how to get them well. He will make them well. He loves them and wants them well. And he gives them the medicine. And the test is, do you trust the doctor? So that that's the context in which I deliver the oughts and shoulds and musts of the Bible. Do you trust the doctor? He's good for you. So if he says uh, don't flee fornication single people out there. If he says flee fornication, it's good for you. Take that medicine. It's not bad for you. And instead of feeling it as oh another weight, you deliver it as a way to get well. And and, and then you say uh, don't be like the lawyers. Jesus criticized them for loading heavy loads on men's back and wouldn't lift a finger to help them carry those loads. My whole theology is designed to help people carry the load of obedience. And so I want to try to show them the pursuit of joy is the way toward obedience that Wanting to get well is the proper paradigm for thinking about the biblical commands, not an employee who just hopes he might get paid eternal life or paid some reward. It's not payment from an employer. It's getting well from a physician. So really, I'm going back, and I guess the essence of my answer is to reinterpret the service of God for them with the models that I have used. There's so much more that could be said on that, but hmm. The question is the pursuit of ambition, I mean the, the, the ambition for excellence. and um, Well, I'm sure that none of us is ever pure in our motives, and I just want to make sure you understand what impurity is. Impurity is not wanting to be happy in what you do, uh, but impurity is the, the uh, desire for the praise of man. I think that's probably the most insidious thing. For a person like me who writes a book and then gets invited to a conference in Worcester, did I come here because I have a longing to expand my joy in God by extending it to you? Or does it just feel good to be in front of new people? And, uh, I, I don't know the full answer to that question, but I, as I've wrestled over the years with the purity of my own motives, Um, I have come to the conclusion that I'm always going to be fighting that battle, whether I come or whether I stay. If I choose to stay home, I have to wrestle with the same thing. I'm going to be standing before my people, or I'm going to be visiting somebody in the hospital, or I'm going to be writing an article, or I'm going to be talking to my staff. And at every point, the question is arised, am I doing this now to enhance my reputation and get more praise from my own people and to get strokes from them? Or am I doing it to maximize my pleasure in God? So I've decided it, it won't—it just won't do to say, well, don't don't go speak anywhere, or don't write books, or because that just postpones the problem. It just shifts the problem onto another thing. We we cannot escape ambition. And so uh, Paul had an ambition. Paul said, my ambition is to preach the name of Jesus where it has never been named. He had a holy, powerful ambition to get a great job done. And so I want to say yes to ambition, yes to goals, yes to drive, but just put God right at the center. And once you catch on to the maximizing of your pleasure in God by expanding it to as many people as you can, then I think it liberates you to, to just go like be be like uh William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That order is very important. It's theologically thought through. Mary Drury in her biography of, of Carey points out very carefully that the order of those two sentences was intentional on Carey's part. He expected great things from God so that he could attempt great things for God. He didn't attempt the great things in order to get the, the, uh, the great things from God. It's the other way around. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Not uh, work out your salvation so that God will work in you, His will and good pleasure. So yes to ambition if it's God centered and pursuing maximum joy in Him. I was going to I just want a very practical point. It seems that pastors or elders are taking away from building study of um, all of communicate. I mean I just see thousands of hours in the word in Greek and Hebrew and reading and studying and then full of that communicate for blessing to the people. How the do you structure practically your week in, week out day so that you can get into the word and study? Uh I don't do very well right now. Um I don't write books during regular pastoral duties. I did, way back at the beginning, get one book written that way. I don't anymore. I have to ask for a month away or something to write. Um, um, I'm not a good example of what you're just talking about. I sound like I am, I suppose, but I'm not. I mean, it always sounds better, you know, when, <laughs> when you're up in front and you're giving out the fruit of a long time. But it's it's never as uh, nice as it sounds like. But... Um, and if I were to tell you how I do it, you'd get discouraged because I have seven people on my staff, seven pastors, and you probably don't. I'm very blessed. You see, I, I have a lot of people helping me, so I can almost write my ticket in my church. I, I can just say, "You do this and you do this." I don't want to. Uh, that's that's not encouraging to you guys who have who are in a, in a pastorate by yourself and you. And I, I frankly respect tremendously the, the challenges that those of you have who are the only pastor. Um, but I will say, I will call you to be, uh, tough on yourself here and carve out time to preserve your languages, your Greek and your Hebrew. If you have a computer, get mem cards. And put it on the computer and keep your languages up and read a little Greek and Hebrew each day. You know, just 10 minutes a day will save Greek and Hebrew for years to come. You don't have to have hours a day to do that. It takes tremendous discipline, however, just to get 10 minutes a day. Uh, and then carve out the time when you're going to read and uh, treat it. If you if you use a day timer like this, you know, I don't know how anybody lives without one in the 20th century. But if you, if you use a day timer... Then uh, whenever you whenever you start one of these two month dealies or one month, depending on the kind that you have, go through like I did and uh, slash off appointments with your books. Or appointments with yourself or with God or with your wife. And uh, and then if you have a, a secretary with part time or whatever, who who fields people's appointments, I give it to her and uh, all my appointments are on here, including the ones with with myself. And therefore you, you're not stuck when people ask you to do something by having a, an open calendar and having in the moment to decide between whether you're free or not. Cause you always look free. My goodness, look at all those blank pages. And they're standing in front of you kind of going like this. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's fine, that's fine. So you need a lot of black marks in here from the word, from the word go. And, and I, the reason I said be tough on yourself is because I, I was just nailed by one of our women a week ago. This is part of the tears. I mean, you try your best to find the pattern of life. And she just just, just raked me over the coals. You're never available, Pastor John. You're so busy, you can't even talk to people. And I just wanted to cry right there in her presence because I just spent three hours that morning on the phone trying to talk a woman out of abortion. I just wanted to smash her in the face, frankly. I said, you don't know anything about what I do. But you see, she doesn't. See, she doesn't know what I do. She just knows I'm not available. I'm booked till December 15. I can't talk to anybody. And, and, and that makes people unhappy. You, you have to find a balance of, of minimizing that unhappiness and maximizing your usefulness. You will always have the unhappiness and you must have the usefulness. And only you know you. You can't be me and I can't be you, but you have to carve out enough reading to stay alive. Enough reflection to stay intense. If you find yourself going dry, it really doesn't matter how many people criticize you. You must get away with God. And I don't know the answer. I mean, I just I'm so discouraged about some of this stuff right now in scheduling that I don't know where to turn. I'm on my face before the Lord saying, is she right? I mean, what what should I do? How many more hours should I make myself available? Um, So I just am with you in the struggle. I don't have a real good solution. Can I have an hour with you at <laughs> the Let me check here. <laughs> Did you have a real question? Yeah, I <laughs> do. How have you found uh, in your time of worship that uh, a sense of joy can be experienced and enhanced and uh, that new uh, affection can be grown? Well, I think... The number one key is for the pastor to worship. I'll show you what you're not supposed to do. This is not worship. I have seen so many pastors not worship. They're getting ready to preach. They're not worshiping. They communicate loud and clear. This doesn't count. This is not important what we are now doing. I just want to greet you and I just want to make sure I've got my notes in order and uh, a totally slap happy approach towards the event. So very simply, the secret is worship. Go hard after God. It has to do with your posture. It has to do with the way you sing those hymns. It has to do with the way you pray. Your people will feel and know if you are going hard after God. I know after 11 years that the dominant influence in our Sunday morning service is my passion for God. People... I'm not a Spurgeon, not by a long shot. Am I a Spurgeon? He could get a masterpiece of 45 minutes ready in a Saturday evening. I work two days to get a 30 minute talk ready and have to use a manuscript and and don't create and don't have people getting saved every Sunday. But this I will say about myself and think you should be able to say it, too. In some way, Spurgeon said, uh, my people come to watch me burn. The way I have put it is, and I'll just say it right out to my people, I realize that my job is to be a torch in this pulpit and you come in here with your little flickering, little flicking torches and you just do like this into my fire. That's what my people do every Sunday. They stick their torch in my fire and light it and they go away like this. And some of them, it goes out by Wednesday and they come back. Not many. but But the others stick it in there. So you're... It's a very simple strategy. You must be red hot for God. Who was it, was it, uh, oh, who was that Scottish preacher who said, what my people need most is my personal holiness. And what I think that means is my personal flaming love for the righteousness of God. You must find a way. So I fight like crazy on Friday and Saturday. Now, where this is hard is that I'll be so depressed on Thursday, I can't remember my kids' names sometimes. I will go to the park, and I'll sit down in the grass, and I will be numb. Sometimes it's just lack of sleep. I know that's a big physiological computer, but I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty uh, easily depressed kind of person. Wouldn't know it, maybe, but I am. And uh, so I'll sit there on Thursday, and I'll say, sometimes I don't have the strength to say it out loud, Lord, I must preach on Sunday. I must flame on Sunday and it must be real, no fake. And in 11 years, he's never failed me. Never once have I not loved what I have to say and had the energy and the passion to say it. You know why that is? My people pray for me. That's what Spurgeon said. That's what I say. I can tell it because I, my people know my sermon preparation days are all day Friday and all day Saturday. I tell them that repeatedly. Remember me. Remember me. And it's like a miracle. Thursdays are my down days, and something happens on Friday. And I'm, I'm soaring almost every Sunday morning. And it, I can crash like a straight down jet on Sunday night. With my wife, we can't talk with each other, we're so mad or something like that. And, and, and just be soaring like this. On Sunday morning, so that I'm not phony. I mean, I'll tell my people this. I'll tell them what I felt like on Thursday. I tell them that tonight it might be awful, but right now I love what I'm saying, and I love you, and I want you to. I want you to be excited about it. That's the spiritual warfare. That's the spiritual warfare that you must fight. And then I'm up at 4:45 on Sunday morning, preach twice. First sermons at nine, second ones at 10:30. I'm up at 4:45 and on my face, desperate. God. I must have you. If I go in there with just a piece of paper and my brain, it's all over. You come and you bless this service. And I just wrestle with him every Sunday morning for that fire to fall. So my, my answer is uh, worship God on Sunday. Now, it's two thirty two. I'm going to let Mark stick in here. I'm willing to linger here as long as I can. My plane doesn't leave till seven something, but I don't know how long it takes to get to Logan. So however, uh, I better leave, huh?